from a designer standpoint, the only place you can ever set anybody and with certainty is on the tee box. Mm-hmm. Once the ball gets airborne, it could go anywhere. So you're not really understanding or able to sort of pinpoint what every golfer's experience is going to be once they get out into the golf hole. But on the tee, we really want to be able to show the golfer, okay, this is this is the picture we're trying to create for you. Now you have to figure out based on your skill level, how do I work my way through this golf hole? And I think if the thought process is compelling enough and the beauty of the golf hole is strong enough and the strategy is interesting, then now you've focused on that player and their experience in the golf course and on the golf hole. Welcome to another episode of the Golf.com podcast. I am your host, Sean Zock. And in the vein of Thanksgiving and all the Thanksgiving cliches out there, I'm going to tell you all about something I'm thankful for. Great golf courses. Just kidding. Sort of. I'm no golf course snob. The best well-known courses that people pay hundreds of dollars for, they're all great. I get to play them time and again. They're all great. The ones that can't crack the top 50, they're all pretty great too. What I'm most interested in when it comes to golf courses is how they came to be. How did they get here? Who dreamt up Oakmont? Who dreamt up Pebble Beach? Who dreamt up Royal Troon? And what did they see every step of the way? The perfect guest to help me and anyone else listening understand golf course design and golf course architecture is the guy we've got on today. He's Gil Hans, and if you somehow don't recognize that name, you'd at least recognize some of his work. We're going to talk about a lot of it today. Gil, you're a busy man. Thank you for jumping on with me today. Sean, my pleasure. Thanks for asking. Well, first things first. You studied landscape architecture at Cornell. Did you always want to make golf courses with that degree? No, I actually kind of came to it a little bit late. I, I studied at University of Denver, uh, political science and, and history, and, and I'd always doodled golf holes and, and loved the golf landscape. And uh, you know, my grandfather's the one who introduced me to the game and just fell in love with it. But, you know, poli sci and history are two things I'm really interested in, but it's one of those degrees where, okay, now what do you do? Yeah. So if you uh, if you don't have a job, you go to grad school. So I applied to Cornell, got in, and uh, I'd originally started in their city and regional planning uh, department, but then I switched over to landscape architecture after I'd met a gentleman who was in the program studying to be a golf course architect. And I went home one night, told Tracy, this is really a dream, something I'd love to do. I never realized there was a career path to get there. Uh, but once I, I found out that the, the department at Cornell was willing and able to sort of assist people, and then obviously Tom Doak had gone there four years prior to me. So it uh, all of a sudden turned into a reality. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. And eventually you got to the point, not that much later, after graduating from Cornell, that you ended up creating the business. And informing uh, obviously what has become now one of the more formidable and most popular golf course design businesses out there. Uh, when I when I look at your website, I see the name Jim Wagner. He's a longtime business partner of yours. I'm curious, when it comes to the design uh, of each course and restoration and renovation of various courses, do you guys bring the same aspects to the team or are you are you different in what you each do? Yeah, Jim's a lot funnier than I am. <laughs> He's, um, you know, Jim's been working with me for 20 years now, and I, I couldn't be luckier. I mean, really, at, at the end of the day, you, yeah, golf. We've always approached golf course design as a collaborative uh, production, and I think that you know the, there are 
plenty of people who can bring a lot of ideas and thoughts to the table. And, and Jim has, from day one, been able to do that and also translate those concepts into the field. I mean, we've always been a, a small firm that believes in being on site and being literally hands-on, getting on bulldozers, excavators, working uh, in the field, trying to let the design evolve. And, and Jim, his talents are his, the way he can visualize things and the way he can get on an excavator and build been fantastic. I think the sort of the, the other aspect of what he brings is he's very interested in the, the planning, the uh, budgeting, the scheduling, things that I'm not nearly as good at as he is. And, uh, and so I'm always delighted that he's willing to take on those aspects, which are ultimately crucial. If you're designing in the field, you need to obviously have a game plan getting going into it. And, uh, you know, that game plan, you're going to call some audibles as you find things in the land. But you really need to start off with that first, first foremost, that, that process. Yeah, it sounds like a pretty, uh, pretty perfect teamwork relationship you guys got going on. Uh, when you when you look at your resume of original designs, these are courses that you crafted from start to finish. You've got Castle Stewart in Scotland, obviously most recently the Olympic Golf Course down in Brazil. You're working on Stream Songs' newest track down in Florida. How does the original design start? Does it begin with someone else's ideology, and then you are brought in to bring that to life? How does it dis- how does it actually begin? Well, with the owner, you've got to get somebody who's interested in building a golf course and has a vision for a project, and and then ultimately they're going to marry up with a golf course architect that they think is philosophically aligned with what they're looking for from a design standpoint. You know, once that marriage is sort of set up and you're working with an owner and you've got his trust, then it's really looking at the property he's given you and saying, okay, how do we maximize the, the potential in this landscape? So I think that harkens back to the you know, time I was able to spend in Great Britain. Uh, I think all the projects we look at have really got a sort of a, a feel for a very natural site and a very natural looking design. So we go out on the property, we do what we call cataloging. And where Jim and I will just walk a site and take a topo map that'll uh, show us the contours of the land, but it doesn't necessarily show us all the sort of interest or features or nuances. And then if we can catalog those features, nuances, and put them on the map, then we can go back to the office and really start to lay out where the golf course is going to go and how it's going to flow. We, we, we try to factor in variety, change of direction based on the wind, uh, lengths of holes, direction of holes, dog legs left, dog legs right, basically a big stew that you're trying to put out and, and concoct on this piece of property that at the end of the day needs to suit the needs of the, the owner and hopefully in our minds uh, get the best out of the site he, that he's given us. Yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, there, there's obviously one main person you have to appease, but there's a lot of people that one day we're going to enjoy the golf course, hopefully. Uh, and there's, you laid out a good a good bit of the process. The, the part of every story that always gets me interested is the part that no one can actually see. So, like when you go to Whistling Straits, you see the you know Lake Michigan along the dunes and 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 everything that you have there. It's it's pretty easy to see, but there are things that you can't see, like um, the various research that you have to put into each area, um, building codes and local DNR having to get them involved. How much is that, uh, how much of that goes into the process as well? And how early does that start? Well, that's going to be a critical component of, of what you can build. 
I mean, they generally don't dictate what you can design because you, you know, you're, you're going to sort of figure out how to utilize the land and you're going to understand that there are going to be restrictions based on it. And, and within those restrictions, you're going to design the best golf holes you, you can. Mm-hmm. Where it gets to be an issue is primarily build and, and sort of do you have to build structures in order to prevent runoff from going into adjacent wetlands? And if you do, what do those look like? How does that impact the tie-in from the – so you're trying to make look as natural as possible and then you're having to deal with these sort of artificial intrusions into the landscape. So there's inhibiting factors that come with that, but that's just part of the reality of of the job. And I think that there are sometimes when we always say this, look at anybody else's work, we don't know what the circumstances were as to why they made these certain decisions. Was it based on ownership? Was it based on permitting? Was it just strictly their own design decision? Those are the, the, as you've said, sort of the the unknowns, the the things that you don't see that go into the decision-making process. It's not very rarely is it ever a situation where you've got a clean canvas or a blank slate where you pretty much do whatever you want. There are outside factors that are going to ultimately have an influence on the design. Does that make you, uh, as far as a a leader in the industry, does that make you very less, less critical of anybody else's work? Yeah, I'm just not critical by nature. I think, uh, you know, we all do the best we can. I'm just going to go in under the assumption that every architect is looking at the property and use the best of their abilities and the best of the circumstances that they have to work with. And and then ultimately, you just got to determine whether that was it. Sometimes I think you look at it, was it smart to even build a piece of a uh, build a golf course on a piece of ground that had so many restrictions to it? I think that's the only time you might. Yeah tend to be critical is to say, hey, you know, why did they even contemplate building on this property when they knew there were going to be so many limitations as far as the quality is concerned? Mm-hmm. But but in my mind, any golf course is a good golf course. We love the game. We love uh, the, the playing grounds it's played upon. And there's there are no sort of clear rights and wrongs in golf course architecture. It's very subjective. And in many instances, it's more art than architecture. I mean, there are obviously engineering aspects and and physical, practical aspects you need to address and making sure the golf course functions. But when it comes down to presentation, look, feel, uh, strategy, that's ultimately, you know, in the in the eye of the golf course architect who's creating it. Yeah, that's certainly, I'm sure, one of the, the beautiful parts about it for anyone who's trying to take it on is you, you might not do it right, but you probably aren't doing it wrong either. Uh, one, right. One, one thing that's... Uh, it's very key with your your company. I look at the website, and one page reads that we look to nature for inspiration. Now, I got to admit that it's a bit of a cliche only because you don't have time to explain it on the website. Can you unpack that a little bit? What, is it, what does it exactly mean to use nature as inspiration? Well, I think to sum it up simply is we want our golf courses to look different from one place to another. I mean, we don't want to build a golf course in, in – Inverness, Scotland, that's going to look like a golf course in Rio de Janeiro or one in Moorpark, California, going to look like one on uh, Shoreham, Long Island. So I think that within that, you're going to, nature is going to dictate the lay of the land. So you're going to have this piece of property, this canvas you're working on. And if you don't go out of your way to significantly alter it, it should, in theory, have unique characteristics that are different than anywhere else. And then within the the playing confines of the golf course, you're obviously going to want you know, well-conditioned greens, well-conditioned fairways, uh, tees, et cetera. But then as you get closer to the periphery, 
you know, how do the hazards and how does the rough meld into the natural landscape? So in this instance, nature is going to provide you with a palette of vegetation that would be indigenous to this particular area of the world. So if you have a, a golf course that feels like it sits on the ground, then that in theory is drawing inspiration from nature. And if you have a golf course that ties and blends into its surrounds through the use of native vegetation, then you're also drawing inspiration from what nature's provided you in the surrounds. Yeah, I like that. Now, is there a an example that anyone listening would be able to think of off the top of their head that, that you could point to where nature inspired a specific a specific feature in the course? Well, I think you, you look at places like uh, Abandoned Dunes or uh, Stream Song that you know, sandy based areas but you know the red and the blue at stream song and, and our course black draw from the sort of the spoils that were left behind through the mining operation and the native vegetation that exists there then you look at a place like Bandon dunes where you've got you know the, the pacific ocean as a, as a boundary for for some of the golf courses and how does the course interact with that cliff line and how does it draw inspiration from the the vistas that are part of it i you know i think that's another aspect of golf course design that is important is that if you're given a a great natural feature whether it be the mountains in the distance or the ocean or uh, links dunes how do you borrow and draw those sort of outside landscapes into your golf course so you're kind of borrowing the the beauty and the character that exists there so i think every golf course will be able to draw somewhere from its surrounds and from and from the natural beauty uh, to get its inspiration. But I think most people understand if you look at a, a beautiful golf hole that feels like it's in sync with its surrounds, there's something inherently good about that. Mm -hmm. How much does do wind patterns play a role in how you d determine where holes are going uh, and in what direction and how close you get maybe to the coast. I know um, with the course you did over in, in Scotland, uh, Castle Stewart, that, I mean, Scotland is known for having just wind all, off all kinds of coasts and all kinds of directions. N not just to use that as an example, but, I mean, how much does wind pattern, is that something that you focus on when deciding, like, directionality of holes? Yeah, you, you definitely do. I mean, you're trying to get it so you're not constantly playing into or against or, or you know, down or sidewinds. You're trying to get variety through change of direction, and hopefully the property itself allows that to occur. I mean, if you had a course, a piece of land like the old course is built on where it's basically an out and back, you're somewhat limited in the changes that you can make. If you have a piece of land like Muirfield, where it's a big rectangle and you can constantly tack or change direction, that's ultimately the best way to look at it in dealing with wind. But I think the key things, too, are to say, listen, I mean, Pete Dye adopts this philosophy where if you want a long hole, make it long. You know, make it into the wind, make it uphill. Don't build a long hole, long hole yardage-wise, downwind, downhill, then all you have is a medium-length hole. Mm -hmm. So I think you're looking at you know maybe a short par four. You want to play it downwind and make a player really show a little bit more finesse in that standpoint. So you're always looking to vary things up, make changes, change your direction. But another more subtle aspect of sort of dealing with a very windy site, which we did at Castle Stewart, but, you know, Mark Parson and the owner and our co-designer was looking at putting surfaces. 
if you know you have potentially significant winds are going to blow on the golf course and you build severely undulating greens, you may wind up in a situation where you've got to stop play because balls are moving on them. So you really have to sort of factor in. If I'm looking at a, a the occasional or, or even more than occasional 30-mile-an-hour wind that's going to be on this golf course, how can this golf course, if we're looking at it to play firm and fast, how can we build architectural features that are not going to cause the golf course to shut down when you get into these sorts of weather situations? I like that. And I think anyone who remembers the 2015 British Open at St. Andrews, not that that's exactly what happened, but they had some pretty incredible weather and it, it caused, uh, well, I guess with how they treated the greens is one of the instances where wind can do a lot to, to your golf ball, uh, even on the, on the playing surface. Another thing your website says is that traditional golf courses focus first and foremost on the player and his or her experience on the course. So when you're focusing on a player, what does that mean for the shape of your golf course? What does it mean to have the, the, the player first and foremost? Well, I'm glad you're reading our, somebody's reading our website. That's a good thing. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where we feel like there was a period of time in golf course architecture where maybe the player and the experience of playing the game were secondary, you know, that there were most golf courses were being built to sell real estate, uh, to create pretty pictures, to hide cart paths, to sort of focus on things that weren't necessarily first and what we believe first and foremost uh, what a golf course should do. And I think if you look at great old golf courses, they always focus first and foremost on how is this golf course going to be played? How is it interesting? How does that golfer experience um, the walk in the park? You know, is, is that's something that's really important to us is building walking golf courses. Obviously, if you have physical limitations and you can't walk, we, we wouldn't begrudge anyone to play, you know, if they need a cart. But we try to build golf courses that are walkable, that are easy to get from tee to green, that sort of have a very nice flow to them. So I think all that experience of what does it feel like when I'm walking down a hole, what do I see? Because from a designer standpoint, the only place you can ever set anybody and with certainty is on the tee box. Mm -hmm. Once the ball gets airborne, it could go anywhere. So you're not really understanding or able to sort of pinpoint what every golfer's experience is going to be once they get out into the golf hole. But on the tee, we really want to be able to show the golfer, okay, this is, this is the picture we're trying to create for you. Now you have to figure out based on your skill level, how do I work my way through this golf hole? And I think if the thought process is, is um, compelling enough and the beauty of the golf hole is strong enough and the strategy is interesting, then now you've focused on that player and their experience in the golf course and on the golf hole as opposed to focusing on things that may be sort of or should in theory be second or third on the list. Well, I appreciate you helping us kind of dive into your brain because this is exactly what I wanted the conversation to be is you explaining what you see and, and what you decide upon what you see. You recently were in Australia. I think that's why we're doing this interview during Thanksgiving week is that you were down at the Australian Open. That course mm -hmm. is Royal Sydney Golf Club. Uh, you were able to watch both pros and uh, amateur hacks kind of play the course <laughs> during the same week. What do you learn from that? Like, What do you learn from watching completely different players take on the same plot of land? Well, being one of those hacks myself, I, I, I do I commiserate with that level of player and, and how they're uh, working their, through the property. 
but I think seeing the professionals play, I was really more interested in, in what about that current golf course was proved challenging to them. And I think it was the tight nature of it. There were some you know, pretty difficult driving areas based on the, the significant number of trees on the golf course. Um, trying to see whether there were whole locations that compelled golfers to play uh, the golf hole differently on any given day. You know, if they were playing a short par four and, and hitting iron every day, no matter where the pin was, uh, that to me doesn't make for a very interesting golf hole. So I think we're trying to look at what sort of variety, what sort of thought process did they go through on hole, hole by hole on any given day. So, you know, when you think about the the level of precision that those players are able to play at, if you can provide a test that is a uh, level of precision to score on it and score well is really high. Yet the level of precision to quote unquote play it by the rest of us is manageable. Then that's the best possible scenario you can get out of a golf course. And I think that that can primarily be created through location of hazards, creation of angles, um, having the ability through the setup of the golf course to um, create difficulty just by hole location, tucking it behind bunkers, behind slopes, et cetera. And yet on any given day, you can stick it in the middle of the green and it's accessible for everybody. So a golf course that has that flexibility and setup that can accommodate everyday play of the members yet still be challenging and compelling to the best players in the world, in my mind, that's that's the ultimate you're looking for in golf architecture. Yeah, well, that's one of the most fun parts of being an amateur hack, as we can uh, associate with, is is playing a course that pros will play at. Um, myself, I guess I get out to Beth Page, uh, Beth Page Black, probably once, maybe twice a summer. But it was most fun for me in August when, uh, or was it September? Regardless, when uh, when the pros were able to get out there and like try to take that course on, I guess. When you talked about the putting greens, though, so it's your job to create to create the entire course and to think to think from the tee box forward. I guess when you're creating the greens, though, you can't decide where the you know the tournament organizers are going to put the the pins. Is that does that is that a part of the course that you don't give as much attention to because of that uh, factor that you can't really decide where the hole will be? No, we, we certainly give it uh, plenty of attention. I think the Olympic course was really the, the perfect example of uh, a setup team working with the golf course architect and the superintendent to sort of look at a golf course because no one had played it before. It was in its infancy. There was no track record as to where quote-unquote championship hole locations could be. And so Kerry Haig uh, and Dave Garland and Heather Daly D'Onofrio when we were down there in March during the Testament, we went on every single green and talked about right, this is the intention we had for potential hole locations. They, they marked it down. They looked at them, they discussed it. And then when the time came to set up the golf course, they used all of that information. And I think that they just nailed it. They did a great job of getting it set up. They, they day in and day out, there were different um, hole locations based on the, the wind, um, based on the variety of other holes. So I think I think it's important that there is that dialogue between designer, superintendent, and setup team. And so we're always thinking along those lines of if, if we're asked, and, and sometimes you're not, uh, but if we're asked, you know, we think we can help them maximize the potential of the golf course and create a more interesting competition 
if we're part of that conversation, not, not certainly not dictating it, but at least just serving as an aid to say, hey, here's the potential opportunity over here that you might want to look at. How, how pleasing was it for you when there was applause from the actual players and the Olympians that were, they, they enjoyed the test so much, you know, between Rose and Stenson and Kucher pushing it, I guess, towards, I don't know what it ended up at, 16, 17, 18 under, maybe 15 ended up winning. How great was it for you that, that they came back and they said that this was really, really, really well done? Uh, yeah, it's gratifying. I mean, it, it was obviously a great two weeks for us and, and for the work we did, but I think more importantly, it was a great two weeks for golf. You know, I, and I think we needed that. We had uh, there was so many uh, negative discussion about the players who weren't there and people pulling out and the support that the game wasn't getting from the top players that it was important for all of us to kind of walk away after two weeks and have had compelling competitions and interesting um, basically almost the best possible scenario you could have ever asked for. I mean, you get six medalists from six different countries. You had the final men's winning score at 16 under the women's winning score at 16 under. There were three men who double digits under par. There were three women double digits under par. I mean, we could not have drawn that up any better if you asked us at the start of this whole uh, process, you know, four years ago. So, I don't want to say it was validation because it wasn't, we really didn't feel like we needed to validation, but I think it was great for the game. It was wonderful for Neil Cleverly, the golf course superintendent. I mean, he's put so much effort and blood, sweat and tears into that and to have mother nature cooperate, have him dial the grass in. It was kind of a perfect storm where everything came together on for all, for both two weeks. Yeah. Now I want to talk, uh, you, you created that course, but I want to talk about the other side of your job, which is course renovation and course restoration. And I think a lot of people have no idea what the difference is between those two long R words. Is there a brief yeah. way that you could explain the difference between restoration and renovation? Yeah, I, I think that restoration is when we approach a project where the original design, the original architect is the primary focus. So it's either the preservation or the re restoration of, of those ideals and that design. Whereas renovation is more focused on original ideas and thoughts from our team and from our, our, our beliefs that maybe the architectural pedigree didn't stand up or maybe there have been significant alterations to the golf course through the years. Um, and we feel like we can maximize or make some changes that'll, that'll make the golf course better. So, Restoration is all about the original guys. Uh, renovation is more of our fingerprints on the golf course. Okay. Well, if I had to right off the bat guess which you like more, I would imagine you, you like renovation more. But is, am I wrong? Is there one that you prefer over the other? Yeah, you, you are you're wrong. Sorry to say it. Okay. I, I love, like right now I'm sitting on a bulldozer at Aronimink in, in Pennsylvania, uh, close to home, which is nice. But um, it's a Donald Ross great old golf course and we're working to put back his uh, design and, and the style that he had created here and the locations of bunkers etc and and i i just find it fascinating to go back and really try to delve into the thought process that they would bring to a, a project and at the end of the day when we leave here we can steal ideas that we liked uh, discard ideas that we didn't but really feel strongly that that we got into or we did the best we possible could to, to restore their work. And I think that there's a certain challenge and, and certainly a level of uh, detail 
and nuance that we have to bring to that. We almost can't, well, we, we just have to put our ego in check and just say, listen, this is, let's focus on their design. And I think that's a, it's a great learning tool. And perhaps it's part of the historian in me um, that I, that I enjoy that challenge even yeah. more so than sort of being given a property and, and being told to go to town. Yeah. I imagine that's when the, the golf nerd in you deep in you really, really uh, shines and really gets to enjoy the job. Now I got one more topic for you. I appreciate you everything okay. you've you've talked about today. Uh, the last thing I want to get to is modern course design. It's a popular topic because there's a number of courses in America. The number in general has been decreasing over the years. At one point we reached uh, an probably an unstable number of courses in the country. What ways do you try and create a smarter golf course design? Design that makes courses easier to maintain, makes them cheaper to maintain. Yeah, I think that's all part of the equation. As I mentioned earlier, our, our primary goal is just maximize the site. And I think if we we build courses where we're smart about soil management, we're smart about the budget, that we're not building a golf course and spending millions of dollars that we don't necessarily need to, um, if we're building features that are maintainable. And, and we have to understand as part of that equation with the owner, when he gets involved, say, hey, my expectation is we're going to be here and this is the presentation that we're going to have um, based on that, then we can understand what we need to do with the features in order to make them more attainable. But I think the, the thing that goes across every all spectrum with uh, this golf course designs of ours is that we want to build something natural. We want to build it as inexpensively as possible. And, you know, soil is such a critical component of, of maintenance. If you have good free draining soil, you have uh, soil that in essence is, is not been flipped upside down and manipulated. Um, it's ultimately going to allow the, the turf grass to function better and perform better. And if you've got healthier grass, uh, you're going to have spend less money on the, the inputs that need, the industry needs to put into it. Um, if it drains well, you're going to spend uh, less money on water and irrigation. You're going to be able to maintain it in a more sustainable standpoint. And then, you know, the last piece of the puzzle too there is is selecting the right grasses. You know, select grasses are going to ultimately allow you to be successful and and allow you to do, decrease those inputs, water, chemical, fertilizer, to to produce the course. So if we we can do all of those things and consult with the golf course superintendent, and it's great having him or her on site. You know, before we get started so that they see everything that's going on. They can make sure that we're not building stuff that they can't maintain or they make sure that we're actually through the construction process taking care of the property in a way that's going to give them the opportunity to be successful. I think that's a great partnership that gets established from day one. I like it. You can, you can go get a, a college degree in architecture uh, and landscape design, but there are, there are many facets of the golf course design industry that include finances and science and money and business and, and a, a number of things. So it's it's one, uh, I'm sure, complicated but riveting process the entire way. Now, I know you're a traveling man. Are you, are you at least going to plop down and watch some football and eat some turkey this Thanksgiving weekend? Oh, yeah. It's my favorite holiday of the year. We we typically work in the Northeast. Uh, you know, it's where we're based. So it's the time of year where it's starting to get cold and projects are starting to wind down. So the workload's a little bit less and we can just sort of 
really relax and, and get the family all together and, and, and take it easy. And it's great to see all the guys that work with us. You know, we get so many good guys that work so hard on our projects and is able to see them kind of gear for this holiday as well. And just, uh, you know, eat too much turkey, watch too much football and just, just relax for a few days. I like it. Well, I appreciate the time, Gil. Thank you for breaking down what is a very complex, but very interesting and intriguing process for any of the golf nerds out there. Thanks for giving me the chance, and thanks for reading our website. I appreciate that. You got it. That was Gil Hans. Hopefully you get a chance to play one of his golf courses one day. If you like the podcast, tell me about it on Twitter at Sean underscore Zach. That's S-E-A-N underscore Z-A-K. Enjoy Thanksgiving and eat your heart out. I'm your host, Sean Zach.